0: Welcome back, everyone, to the LED podcast. I am Will Law. Joined here with my co-host Kyle Krieger.
1: Hey, good morning. How's it going? I'm
0: going great. Going great. And we're delighted today to have Razan Abdeen Adnani, all the way from New York City, on with us. Good morning, Razan. How are you? Razan, how are you? <laughs>
2: I'm very well. Thank you for having me.
1: Dude, you did awesome. such a good job. You did such a good job on that name. And then you messed it up right after. But that's fun. Right
0: after. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, that's, that's how it works. So, yeah. But we're excited to have you here. Um, I'm excited. I was going through your uh, your IG and your website. And I told you beforehand that I salute you. And I do it publicly in front, uh, front of our audience um, for, for championing your cause. Um, I think more people should stand up and, and make their voices heard and be part of the part of the solution uh, instead of just adding to the problem. So I, I salute you and your efforts and what you're doing. Thank you so much for saying that. That really means a lot. Awesome, awesome. So just to give you a little rundown of our podcast and how it came to be is that we, Kyle and I, work together uh, here in Houston and we started a conversation now, I guess about five years ago, about teaching and different ways to enhance teaching and to kind of uh, amplify teacher voice in the whole equation of teaching. And Kyle had the idea of, why not just start a podcast? And we started out initially with just us having conversations back and forth, and we just said, hey, we should try to invite other teachers and other people to be a part of this conversation with us, and... Here we are now, I believe we're at episode remember, episode 80, 81, 82. Somewhere around there. What is it? <laughs> this,
1: this will be eighty two.
0: Episode eighty two. And so um we're just like I said again, our goal and our mission is to return value to the teaching crafts and to give teachers an opportunity to express their authentic voices so that others can glean from from their wins, from their losses, from their you know, their successes and their failures. And
3: so
2: that's why we've invited you to be on here with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, I've noticed that you guys are doing a lot of good work and that your podcast seems incredibly prolific. It seems like every day there's some new fabulous interview up on your podcast. So thank you for offering that to teachers because I think we could always use fresh
3: and new perspectives.
1: Yeah, and the the funny thing with that was, you know, we we really – we did 16 episodes last year that were primarily just the two of us. And then, you know, Will, Will was really like, we got to add other people. And I'm like, okay. So I started reaching out to people, you know, through Instagram or people that I knew expecting, you know, I would maybe get like one a week. But I bet seven out of ten people that I reach out to say yes.
3: That's wonderful. And so
1: and so that's why it all of a sudden we went to we went from like trying to we, we had set the goal to do one a week to do fifty two. And then all of a sudden like in April we had done like forty and we went from one a week to two a week to now we're at three and sometimes four a week. Wow. Oh my goodness.
2: I cannot imagine the time and effort that goes into curating a podcast. So thank you guys for your work too
1: yeah and we Thank appreciate you. that and and you know the, the thing we like about the podcast though is is it doesn't take it doesn't take a lot for us to really do it I mean I'm sitting here in Wisconsin with my computer and we're on a three-way call and I'll go back and I'll listen I'll do some editing but it we we deliberately choose not to, we don't edit content very very rarely will we edit content out only if someone asks us to uh-huh. because we feel like, we we want the natural conversation to be what it was and right. to really kind of kind of be authentic and and tell the authentic teacher story and and to our delight and surprise you know people have been so willing and and so helpful and like the craziest thing we were in Las Vegas for the teacher heart out conference and we were sitting at a table and someone at the table recognized Wilkie's voice and was like, are you the podcast guys? And I just, like, I just about fell out of my chair. I was like, yes, actually we are. Thank you. Celebrity status. I wanted to get up and do a jump and like a fist, fist pound because I was so excited.
0: Yeah, that's, you know, the experience of just being able to have communications with teachers from all over the country that bring in that diversity. Um, I mean, uh, I'm a big fan of Lewis Howell's and the School of Greatness. And, you know, when he said, you know, he started out in his book saying that, you know, he just started out initially saying, I just want to talk to people and find out what did they do to become great. And, right. and, and I think that as myself, as a lifelong learner and a lifelong educator, as many educators as I can talk to that gives me that many mentors that I can go back and I can glean from to, to enhance my craft and what I'm doing and what I offer to our community. So, uh, and the podcast, again, gives us classroom and, you know, kind of the social, cultural aspect that initially I don't think I was really expecting. I was expecting more, you know, pedagogy and, you know, relationships, but then to add in the, the aspect of, of what teachers are doing outside of the classroom. In extension to to further the cause of global education, right. everyone it's just been amazing, it's been amazing. Okay. So, so that being said, let's lead into some of these questions. Uh, sure. We want to honor your time. Uh, so, can you tell us the story of how and why you became a teacher? Were you always were you drawn into education by the monetary model that I know you support, or did you discover it after years to become a teacher?
2: Thank you. No, so admittedly, I was one of those people who never thought I'd be a teacher, and certainly not of young children. Um, I was an international studies major in undergrad. Um, I was taking a lot of courses on anthropology and political science, um, and I got an opportunity to teach English abroad in Turkey one summer. um, And that was incredibly challenging. But even still, I didn't really think I wanted to be an educator. um, and over the course of my program i just i was studying global poverty and i was wondering you know how can people get out of this perpetual poverty trap that intentionally keeps marginalized folks in the same situation like never able to sort of liberate themselves out of um their marginalized identities and eventually i decided that education sort of was the way to transform the world. So I decided then that I wanted to be an educator. It was around the same time that I went to St. Louis to visit my sister. My niece was in a Montessori school and I got to observe and I had never ever seen school look like this. Um, The young children were so joyful and learning peacefully, and um, the teacher was just sort of walking around and delivering individual lessons. The children were baking bread, and it was just nothing, like nothing I had ever seen before, and I just started researching Montessori, and I fell in love with it, Um, and after undergrad I decided to pursue um, an Montessori teacher certification as well as a master's degree in education so I don't know my path was a little convoluted but intentional I would say and I definitely entered the field of education as an idealist like I'm looking to change the world in the classroom and um, of course the reality was a little bit different but um, that was sort of my path to becoming an educator. I think that's Interesting, because, I mean, Kyle and I both come from two different
3: standpoints um, of education. He was an education major uh-huh. all through college, and I came
0: through an alternative certification program here in Texas um, to become a teacher as my third career choice. Oh, really? So, um, yeah, so it wasn't my—I knew I wanted to teach, and I kind of hovered around doing things with job corps, uh, being career counselors, um you know, uh, director, of student services, social services. I've always kind of been around uh, social community needs and education. But I substituted one time for for alternative school, and I walked in that classroom and when they, I started listening to these kids' stories, I I mean, I quit my job. <laughs> I put in a two weeks' notice. I applied to be a teacher's aide in a school. Took a huge pay cut. Um, and from that moment on, I said, hey, let me go ahead and give this a try and see if this will work for me. And, you know, 12 years later, here I am. It's, it's working, and it's what it is my true vocation, my life calling. And I couldn't see myself doing anything else but, but what I'm doing. So I like the fact that our everybody's story is different, but it all leads to the same basic ideal that everyone deserves to have proper education. Absolutely. I love that. Awesome. So... What is the value of a great teacher for you? What do you think um, about the value of a great teacher?
2: For me, I don't think the value of a great teacher can be overstated, right? Effective, committed educators have the power um, to help children realize their intrinsic love of learning and discovery um, and make children feel seen, heard, loved, safe, uh, and I don't really know what could be more important works than that.
3: Mm. Mm. I love that. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> no more important work. That's absolutely. What I mean. You know, we say all the time that teachers are the 1% in America. We make up 1% <laughs> of the population, and we literally have control of the 99. Uh-huh, absolutely. You know? So if we do our job effectively, we're given the tools to do our job effectively. all the things are removed to allow us to do our job effectively, um, we, we, I think we, we think we know what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, I think about that Steve Jobs quote where he said, um, you know, we, we, hire great, we hire smart people and tell them what to do when we should hire smart people and have them tell us what to do. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that that's where education needs to get to, the listening to the teachers and the, the, the boots on the ground and say, hey, this is what will be most effective for my population and give them that freedom right. to do it. Right. So, awesome. Okay, so what is one thing, I kind of changed this question up a little bit, but what is one thing you feel all students should be taught? What's one <laughs> thing that you think all students should be taught? So this is a big, difficult
2: question. But I think fundamentally we have to teach our students, um, our learners, how to be independent. You know, how to think for themselves and do for themselves and how to make the right decisions even when someone isn't, like, waiting to reward you for
3: it.
1: Right. And we, you know, this question is kind of, Um, where it comes from is when, when Wilkie and I met, I was, I was four years into my teaching career and and I got transferred to the school that he was at because the principal, um, at his school was a friend of mine and Uh he was the first person to really recognize that my issues in the classroom weren't because of any of my teaching strategies or my content knowledge. It was because in my personal life, there were a few things that were not, not jiving with who I wanted to be. Uh And he really, you know, got down and, and, and this question we've whittled down over the course of five years to, you know, what is really your purpose and what is, you know, what, what really can you, um, Teach the kids, and and we like this question because we're we have a, a an online teacher novice teacher mentoring program where we're launching next month, and we're, and we're thinking about how to start it, and and you know really when you're a when you're a teacher in your first to third year, it can be so overwhelming. We just want to find a way to help teachers get down to that that main thing. So you know what's what's really your main job if you know you could do this one thing for your kids throughout the course of this year, what would that one thing be? And, you know, Uh like, like your answer is spot on with that, but that, that to me was something I wish I would have known or had thought more about when I was a first year. Uh So no, but we really, and that's, that's a way better way to, to, uh, ask that question. Real nice job. Yeah, I was thinking about it well, last night, and I was like, I hope it doesn't throw off too much, but just,
0: just a small little tweak. how." Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. um, and I think that's kind of, you know, I've been going to PDs all summer, getting ready to go back into the classroom. And um, one of the things that I've been getting from it is the bigger I make my why, the more attention I draw to it. It's almost like an an, an, energy force that the larger that energy force gets from its core, it's going to engulf everything around it. And I think that as teachers, if we go in our classrooms with our why so big, every kid that walks in is going to get engulfed by our why. Especially if it's not a I'm here just because I get paid or just because I wanted a paycheck or I wanted summers off, that's going to get, you know, that creates chaos because there's so much Rambling around, but a unified why that said, "I want you to be better." You're walking into a room that I want you to be better and more coherent when you walk out into the world. I mean, that type of why creates students who, who who become adaptive and understand how to make decisions in the real world. So, mm.
3: <laughs> all right.
0: So now that we've kind of talked about that, um, what is your take on the state of education today? Oh wow,
2: I think that the state of education today is dire, Um, it's inequitable, we rely too heavily on testing, Uh, we aren't preparing children for the real world, quote unquote, we're not offering them the practical skills that they will need to navigate adulthood. Um, And teachers are often chronically overworked and underpaid and underappreciated. And I think we really need just a new system entirely. I think the one we have is not working, at least not for the majority of of people. Right.
1: And I I look at, you know, what you said about overworked and underpaid. But, I mean, I think the one that really sticks with me is the underappreciated. Because – for the most part, teachers, even in the best paying areas, they know they're not going to get super wealthy by being a teacher. Most people do it because it's like Will said, it's in their heart. And for absolutely. those people, I feel like they they come in with that understanding. And I'm not saying that teachers shouldn't get paid more. I absolutely am. But I think for me and, and people who it's really in their heart, that feeling of being unappreciated or underappreciated can really, can really rattle the teacher.
2: Absolutely. And I should note that um, I've been an early childhood educator. So there was sort of another layer of, oh, you just play with children all day. You're not an actual teacher. Mm.
3: (laughs) Mm. Yeah, Those are the people who who don't know anything about development
0: in the first five years of children's lives. Absolutely. (laughs) Developmentally, you have to understand that those are the the most precious years uh, of a child's development. Um, I know me being an educator. My daughter's
3: now; she'll be twelve this month. Help me, please. Uh, seventh <laughs> grader, and
0: um, she—I poured so much into her within the first five years of her life that by the time she got to school, she was teaching school. You know, <laughs> we, would, I love it. we would punish her like we would tell her, you know, go to your room, take a time out, go read a book, and we'd come in there and she'd have all the bears lined up around and she'll be reading the book to her bear you know so it's like she took a situation and said okay you put me in my room and told me to read a book but i love reading books you know <laughs> i love reading to people so you know even getting to school her teachers are like oh my god she's like she's like another teacher in the classroom she you know she knows how to do this but i think when you train children i mean i don't want to use the word train but when you when you're raising them and you're active parenting uh, those first five years are so important and the people that you introduce your kids to as far as, you know, early childhood caregivers, you know, early childhood teachers make a big difference in, in the development of those, the kids learn some of those adaptive behaviors that are necessary. <laughs> <laughs> well, <I> absolutely agree. <laughs>
2: the most formative and foundational years of life. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, I, um, you said, when
0: you said it was unequitable, um, we were on a, the podcast a while back with uh, Ryan Parker, and <laughs> we were talking with him. And um, I in in stressed to him that we're, we're teaching, the majority of our kids were teaching in a system that was, not, that was never designed for them. <laughs> uh, you know, it wasn't a system for the immigrant. It wasn't a system for the African American. It wasn't a system made for anyone besides the upper class. To, you know that
3: or the little class that we were trying to prepare for the workforce the industrial you know revolution you know we want to make sure we ingrain in them and indoctrinate them into what the work life is going to be
0: like Realizing I now these kids are not they're not being prepared to go to assembly lines. you know they're not asked to sit in rows and do one independent job on their
3: own and never collaborate with someone else or understand the importance of getting along with other people
0: because you need them for your own sense of survival well, I mean, like it's, we, and Colin always talked about that one of the things is that we hate the word reform uh, we rather use the word reframe it yeah. you know because education is what it is you know you can't reform education it is what it is it's drawing out of kids what was already put in there <laughs> reframing it saying let's put it in a different context you know and I love the Montessori uh, approach uh, my wife is a big big proponent of the Montessori approach um and, um, uh, she actually introduced me to it and I think it's amazing, you know, to, to be able to do that and to build kids from that sense of, this is what I love. Now I'm going to show you how to take what you love and take it further. <laughs> so, <clears throat> all right, um, I got this from your website, so, but I'll let you tell our listeners. Uh, what is your philosophy of your of education?
2: Right, so um, as an individual educator, I am deeply influenced by the work of Dr. Maria Montessori. Um, and she was a physician. Most people don't know this about her, so she was one of the first female physicians in Europe as a whole in the um, late 1800s. Um, she was also an anthropologist and pedagogue, and she developed um, this method of education, which is very comprehensive and holistic. Um, And what I mean by holistic is it's not just concerned with academic or intellectual growth, but it also takes emotional, social, spiritual, and physical development into account too. So it takes the whole child into consideration, and that is something that really drew me um, to this method.
1: So then, um, so then in in because uh, I'm I'm very unfamiliar with the Montessori um, school model. So how would that be different, say from my small town, Wisconsin public school, uh, background?
2: Okay. So one thing I have to mention is that the name or term Montessori is not copyrighted. So anyone can call or any institution can call itself a Montessori school. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's an authentic Montessori program. Um, But Montessori schools do tend to be very different from traditional mainstream schools in a sense that most of our mainstream schools are teacher-led, whereas the Montessori classrooms are child-centered. And instead of giving whole group lessons, we focus on individual and small group lessons. Um, And... The work is very sensorial and hands-on. Dr. Montessori acknowledged that children, and especially young children, learn by doing and not merely by hearing words, Um, so it really helps them to be active learners. Um, The classrooms are multi-aged, which is also very different. And so each child works at their own pace. And so there's this beautiful, non-competitive atmosphere. So yeah, it's really, really quite different from traditional education. I highly recommend just going to a Montessori school in your local community if there is one and just observing.
1: Right. So on the the social development side, are there problems when you have kids that are of different ages cuz i know you know that's kind of part of or it i would assume that's kind of par, part of why we move kids the way we do in public schools is to keep them with their own age group to socialize but do you, do you notice a difference in how they learn that socialization when they're with kids of different ages
3: no
2: i i well one of the purposes is sort of to be more reflective of a real society where not everyone is necessarily the same exact age that we are um and it gives just this wonderful opportunity for the older children to serve as teachers and guides for the younger children, and the younger children to sort of um, see what work they'll be expected to do as they progress. So each classroom has, um, like, three years. So there's a zero to three class, a three to six class, a six to nine class, and so on. Um, But I don't think there are challenges particular to the fact that there are um, more than one age group. Um, you actually see a lot of spontaneous help,
1: um, and just this really nice sense of being Hmm. nice. All right. So we were, um, you know, like we've been kind of scouting your Instagram and your, your website (laughs) and all that. So one thing I really liked what you were talking about is the link between, uh, freedom and discipline. Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Um, So this isn't really my theory, of course. This is based off uh, Montessori's theory of freedom and discipline. And Montessori believed that freedom and discipline could not exist without the other. So true discipline comes from within the child. um, And this sort of inner discipline, in her opinion, is more meaningful and sustainable and beneficial to society, um, as opposed to a sort of discipline that is... Uh, imposed on the child through um, rewards and punishment. So the freedom to be independent, to make discoveries and mistakes on one's own um, is essential to optimal development and to the development of inner discipline. Um, So, um, discipline in the Montessori classroom is sort of based on a system of freedom and limits. So, children are granted a lot of freedom in the classroom, but each freedom has a corresponding limit. Um, and what that might look like is You know, the the children have the freedom to converse with their classmates and communicate because people are inherently social beings, right? But the limit to that freedom is your interactions with others have to be respectful, and they also have to be appropriate, right? So we have to use respectful, low voices. We don't interrupt people when they're talking. That's not polite, Um, And so on. So um, it looks sort of different than the system of rewards and punishment that is present in most mainstream
3: classrooms.
1: Hmm. So then, you know, if if we're talking more about the mainstream classroom and, and what we can give those teachers, because I grew up um, and I'm not proud to say that in my initial teaching, like the word discipline and the word consequence were always I always had a negative connotation with those two things. Um, and and as I've gotten to be, you know, into my thirties now and and growing up, I realized that discipline is not a not something somebody does, but it you know it's the choices I make in my actions, and you know with every action I take, there are consequences. They can either be good or bad. So how do you think we should be redefining discipline in schools kind of on a general level? Yeah, I think we need to radically
3: transform our notions of what constitutes discipline and what it means to be a disciplined
2: person. Um I think as it is now we think of discipline as something punitive or corrective um that's meant to exert our power or domination over children um by attempting to control their behavior with a system of external punishments. But there is a ton of compelling research as to why this isn't really an effective method. Um, And children are intrinsically motivated people, and I think that we often forget that. Um, So in the Montessori environment, we really try to build self-discipline, which is sort of more reflective of what you experience as an adult, right? Um, There are certain things that you have to do. There are certain ways of being in order to live within a community or a society in an effective and productive way.
1: Yeah, so I think you know, along with what you said, if if we could teach kids to be in not, I guess that's not the right word. If we could help kids find their intrinsic, you know, motivations and their intrinsic discipline, I think that would make all the difference for every kid. So, how do you really work to um, help kids find cultivate their intrinsic discipline and motivation?
3: discipline in the Montessori
2: method, and it's kind of hard to give an elevator speech about it, but it is really offering independence, um, and letting children make mistakes on their own and discoveries on their own, and of course, it doesn't mean that children can do anything they want, or up limit um, But I think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that we need to let children think things out on their own. And we need to stop thinking children are inherently manipulative. Just like we aren't born with the ability to walk or talk, being disciplined and showcasing self-control has to develop over time. So I just think we need to be more conscious about helping and guiding children along the path as opposed to always thinking that we have to punish them when they do something wrong because we have to think what is this teaching them? What is this really teaching them long term? So I think that's really a question to keep um, in your head
1: as you work with children. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So... Um, to kind of shift gears a little bit away from uh, the Montessori pro- platform itself, um, we, we talked a little bit before getting on here and we, you know, we, we really appreciate the fact that you are um, out there in, in the world and, and speaking about social justice issues. So just on a general level, um, what's it like to be an Arab American teacher in, in our society today?
2: Um, honestly, at times it can be incredibly difficult. Um, Arabs are painted in such a deeply dehumanizing manner in the media. Um, And there have been various times where I've been put in really sort of uncomfortable situations. Um, One time I was teaching at um, a public charter school in Arkansas, for example, and my teaching assistant actually said to me, you're Arab? Wow, that's scary. Um, And uh, my administrator really didn't do much. Um, she was still in my class the next day, and I just kind of had to suck it up and keep my head down and, and work, but wow. it's certainly something that I plan to share uh, more stories about in the in the coming
0: future. <laughs> yeah. And, what, and when was, was that, that? That's like recent history, right? Like, <laughs> that's like three years ago. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Like,
2: wow. I thought like, I had no idea that you were Arab. That's scary. Those were her exact words. And I was just like, oh my goodness. It was like three days before school started. And I mean it made me feel so alone in, in my school environment, in my work environment.
1: So so kind of to ask a follow up and and not trying to just say just our Arab Americans, but you know, what is it like to, to be in our society in one of those groups that are constantly under attack. I mean, cause you know, we see every day what's going on, you know, on our borders and this thing with family separations and all that stuff. So I guess I'm, maybe you don't have a perfect perspective on that, but what are some of these kids especially going through right now? I, I think the pain
2: Isolation of feeling like an other cannot be understated. Um, yeah, I don't really know what to say on that besides that it's painful and it's an isolating experience, especially when you move through your entire educational career, never having a teacher who looks like you or speaks the same language as you at home. Um, and it's it's sort of just a difficult identity to navigate. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I certainly don't have a perfect answer for that.
3: <laughs>
0: I, and I, don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think that there is one because I think that unless you come from that group that we will call "quote unquote" the others, unless you come from one of those groups, there's—it's really difficult to even to 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 frame it in a way for people to understand. I, you know, I want to have to feel exactly what it
3: is in order to really understand what it is. It can't Absolutely. just be like, oh, because most
0: people, you know, even I know, uh, you know, my, you know, being an African American male teacher, I'm a minority. <laughs> you know, There's not many, um, you know. I think like two to three percent of the teaching force is African American. You know, <laughs> so when you think of that, you know, I'm in that other category often. And, uh, you know, I shared with Kyle, I had an experience walking into a PD where as soon as I sat down, I saw the judgment uh, of the people sitting around me at the table, you know, Mm -hmm. primarily, you know, know, Caucasian Americans all
3: around me, um, primarily women. And I walk in and I have my earrings
0: on, you know, (laughs) I have my hat on, you know, I have my T-shirt on um, and I immediately saw judgment. And then the moment we had to engage with one another and share information, I saw the judgment drop. Like I, saw, <laughs> I saw the shift in their countenance because it was almost like they were saying, he's not He's, he's not like what I thought.
2: Which is you know, too bad, really. You know, they're like, oh, okay. Oh, he's, he's intelligent. I guess, I guess we can welcome him in this space. <laughs>
0: Right, and, you know, it's funny. I'm reading Trevor Noah's book right now, Born a Crime, um, uh-huh. and he talks about the uh, that it's not what you look like that makes you feel familiar and and uh, and connect with people. It's how you speak, and right. if your language is the same as theirs, then you you are more accepting of them. But I said, if if I was in any other environment, if I was in a restaurant. I would understand that if I was at you know at a bar. I would understand that. But being at an educational professional development, our we, we have to come in and cast out our biases toward what our kids look like, talk like, think like, in order to win them to get them to the point to where they can learn to express themselves the way that they they should. Okay. Uh-huh. It should be like me, but it should be what's authentic to them and their authentic voice. But if I already have a bias, then. I'm not really going to exert too much
1: energy to, to to do anything except to validate my body. Right. Exactly. And and so. I I I would really like to you know to kind of come back to what you both said about you know if you haven't experienced it, you know you won't really understand it. And I guess the follow up question I would want to ask. So I come from a very privileged small town all white wisconsin good parents good family so how do i you know show show support or engage with these causes um in a way that's authentic to me even though i i don't have these experiences because i i really have concerns like um when i want to talk about social justice issues and things like that i not only do i not want to I don't want to offend the people who are in that group. So I wouldn't want to say something, you know, wrong about, you know, Arab Americans or something like that. So so people who are not in those groups, how, how can we engage with those topics? And especially as a teacher, because it's becoming more and more important for teachers to speak out on those things. So how does someone like me engage? I would
2: say, you're right not from that group, and if you are consciously not wanting to offend a group, I think your job is to listen um, to folks from that community. So listen to people of color and people from other oppressed groups. Let them let you know what they need and what they need you to know. Don't assume things. Um, So I think it's important for activism to always center the folks who are affected by these marginalizations and
1: depressions
3: could you know I mean?
1: right mm-hmm. and i think mm-hmm. you know that's a really good and and that's such a good lesson that could translate to any classroom is i i feel like as teachers and i and i can speak from my experience that there were a lot of times where i assumed what my kids needed and I didn't engage with them and listen to find out what they really needed, and you know that's that's just such a thing. And I and it's really and I I don't want to paint myself into this corner where my life is so hard. But there are so many times that I want to say things or and I and I want to engage, but I, I've been reluctant to just out of that fear that I don't know enough about a certain topic, and. Our society doesn't doesn't pl- place a premium on whether or not you really have a basis of knowledge and you understand a problem to be able to speak on it.
2: Right, and I think it's good that you're admitting none of us are experts on every topic. Um, and I think from your of positionality, it's just, it's important to listen and learn. And it's also important to admit when you've made a mistake, you know,
1: right.
2: we're all works in progress. We're all learning and
3: unlearning.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think that that unlearning word is just, uh, just as important, you know, cause I, I lived in Houston eight years, which is a super diverse city, Um, you know, and then I come back to small town, Wisconsin, where it's, you know, you know, primarily white, where you got to drive 10 miles before you get to the next town. You know, and I'd been living here uh, seven or eight months and I went to visit a friend in Chicago and all of a sudden I was uncomfortable in the, in the big city. And I was like, what in the world? Like was just kind of on the lookout and really defensive with all these people that I was seeing and being around all these people at one time. And I just had to like really step back and you know, say like, these are just people like I've been around people. All these people are doing, you know, their things. And it was really, it was really like a gut check for me to really think about what I was doing and what I was thinking. Cause you can get in a, in a, you know, a place where I live, you can get so isolated kind of into seeing only, only people that look like me. And I, I was really concerned. And I was lucky that one of the friend I was with, one of my best friends, she's like, what are you doing? Like, why are you, why are you being so weird? And it just, it just took that one question to snap me back. And I was like, yeah, because ultimately like, that's one of the things that I miss most about Houston is you can go all over the city and find people of just about every culture Uh and, and you get to interact and, you know, we had at the school Wilkie and I taught at. We we didn't have a lot of um, Asian descent kids, but we had a few that were super fun, and we had some kids that were Mid- were Middle Eastern, and we had some cool. Af- you know, you know, we have. And I, the thing I didn't realize too, like, and I'm embarrassed to say this, like, when I moved to Houston, I didn't realize that there were other like Hispanic countries south of us other than Mexico. Right. Like, you just assume that every Hispanic kid is from Mexico, but Oh man, Ta- call call a person from El Salvador, Mexican, and you'll find out how mad they can get in a hurry. So, but but yeah, I mean it's just and really, and it's something we have to strive to do with the podcast too. Is is to try to be more reflective of of the teaching community as a whole. And you know, not only are we working hard to find more people of diverse backgrounds, we we need to try to find more men. <laughs> And this is a conversation we've had with some friends over the last couple weeks is, and we, he and I have been having for quite a while, is how do we get more men into the profession?
3: That is such an important conversation.
1: You know, and and especially to Will's point, and Will, if you want to expand on this a little bit, because this is what you said too, you know, men that look like the kids they're teaching.
0: Right. Yeah, but I think it, 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 it's going to take a conservative effort uh, Teachers who are in the profession should be that example and that role model that kids would want to be. You know, I always talk about the fact that, you know, I never believed in bullying a kid to get him to do something. Uh, And a lot of people resort to things that they felt like, oh, because you come from this background, I have to handle you this certain way. Exactly. because you come from the hood, I can be good with you, and that's the only thing you're going to understand. So I tell them, I grew up as hood as it comes. You know, I grew up in Cashmere Garden, Fifth Ward, in the inner city in Houston, Texas. But I had a mom who told me, just because you're from the neighborhood doesn't mean that it has to define who you are. It is a part of you, but it's not your definition. And so I think that when you when you approach things from people, with people and anybody you meet with that openness and that objective, and that I don't know who I'm going to be entertained, I'm going to wait until you present yourself to me. And that's what I'm going to present to you as, as an alternative to you know, saying, oh, I'm going to treat you this way because. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll have to talk this way because this is what you're going to understand. No, I actually don't like you putting your hands in my face. No, I don't like you right. invading my personal space. You know, no, I don't like you getting loud with me. That's not, that's not who I am. Just because you think that's a stereotype that meets me, that's not who I am. Right. And I think that, you know, if you give people the option, most people, I tell people, most people don't choose to be a bad person. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm it's because they don't have the tools necessary to make those adaptive decisions to, to, to get themselves out, in, you know, to maneuver in and out of situations that they they just turn into things that they don't want to become, and then they stay there because it's
3: comfortable.
0: Mm-hmm. So, but that's
1: my soapbox. I won't get on that. Um, well, and, and, and to your point, that, that question that you taught me to ask a kid, you know, how many times do you, in your classroom and in, in what you've done, Will, when a kid winds up in the office, you go in and you ask them, was this your plan? Did you plan to wind up here today? And the kid, what, every time says no, but then on the same token, they didn't have a plan not to wind up there. Right. And I think right. that's, and and there are times where I've I could have learned that lesson as a teacher that when you don't plan and I don't mean just don't plan your lessons when you don't plan who you want to be when you don't plan how you want to engage with kids and you just fly by the seat of your pants it can put you in some not ideal situations
0: uh-huh.
1: not ideal so
0: correct
1: yeah who's
0: So so um, well, I just want to just move on okay. yeah be sure. respectful of the time. Um, how can we all, and I know this is, um, this is very dear to me, how can we work toward creating anti-bias and anti-racism and cultures in our schools? <laughs> well, the most important thing to acknowledge is that
2: the work begins with us um, as the adults. We all have to first understand our multi-layered identities from race ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic class, uh, abilities, our sexual orientations, and our religious affiliations, or lack thereof. And we have to ask ourselves, um, in what ways have these identities granted me privilege and access? Um, And to what extent have they caused me to face discrimination and marginalization? Um, And then from there, we all have to acknowledge our own biases. We all have them, and we have to work to dismantle them in ourselves, um, in our respective spheres of influence, Um, and the work of anti-bias education. Actually, I don't know if you've ever heard of NAEYC, the National Association for the Education of Young Children, but if you go to their website, they have a list um, of anti-bias education resources. Um, and the first goal is really just to help children learn and love more about themselves, um, affirm their identities, and this can be really small, right? It's learning to pronounce people's names correctly um, and being sure that their language and cultures are represented in our classrooms through the books that we read and the art that is on the wall, the music that we listen to, um, and I think we have such a culture of um, celebrating how we're the same, but it's also important to acknowledge how we're different um, and to give our students accurate, respectful language to discuss differences in a celebratory manner, mm-hmm. if that I makes sense. It I think that. that's a good oh. place to start, but of course it's a work in progress, and I think Um, really committing to being an anti-bias, anti-racist educator or school is something that will take years to ultimately cultivate.
0: But just start small. Right. I like what you said about giving students the language to know how to express it because I think that's key. All learning depends on language. Mm -hmm. That's how we express what we've learned. That's how we learn what we've learned. is through some type of language. Uh, be it verbal, be it physical, um, we've learned everything through some type of language, and I think that giving students, helping them understand that their language shapes their learning, <laughs> absolutely. And that, uh, and when you said that, that just came in my mind. I was like, you know, we we we're responsible for that. You know, I tell my students, I can't, I can't denounce what you hear at home and what you need to survive at, at home. I can't. But I can just say, here in this place, there's a different language that's spoken here. So, so you have to, so you're gonna have to balance your dual languages and know what's appropriate in what place. Right. Right. Until one wins out, because you'll realize that one will get you further, you know, and one will propel you a lot further than, than the other, and one will, you know, potentially hold you back. Um, again, how I talk to my closest friend is not how I talk when I'm in professional society. Yes. Because they're in totally different groups. There's a formal and then there's an informal. And I think our kids are not, they don't know the difference between the two. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they they have no clue. They just believe
3: I can just say whatever and everybody has to accept it. And no, that's not, that's not reality. Right.
0: So, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so Absolutely. I saw in your ID that you do the transformative teachers team. So can you talk to
3: us a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Uh, the Transformative Teacher Series um, is an interview series that I started to showcase the work of some really incredible educators doing transformative work in our schools all around the country. Uh, we have some really exciting interviews coming up, so stay tuned.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's how I started following you is because you had um, Erica Brister on your. On your interview series um, yeah. who's in Houston and, and we had her on the podcast and she's she's fantastic. She is so fantastic. I completely agree. <laughs> yeah, she was she was really fun you know and and she and I had a lot in common with kind of our backstories because you know she's from Pennsylvania but now she's in Houston and you know we both kind of did the same thing where we were just like alright, gonna pack up, gonna leave, gonna go teach and um, not only that is, I mean, but she's doing awesome things especially with the younger kids i mean she's teaching pre-k <laughs> in houston and we had a chance to talk to her a little bit you know when when the district that she well she worked in the same district that will works in but you know they were reconfiguring and you know she kind of got the shorter end of the stick in that district but she was able to find a another job that was a little better for her but um yeah she's wonderful she is yeah so it's summertime
0: now and a lot of teachers are off. Um I have a two part question. How important is teacher self-care for the teacher success?
2: And can you explain how do you decompress to find your center Absolutely, um, I think the importance of self-care is absolutely crucial. Um teacher burnout is real. Um, But I do think self-care looks different for everyone. Um, For me, I'm trying to commit to getting more sleep, which is something that I rarely do. Um, It's simple but essential. Um, And I've just started journaling, so just writing um, my thoughts and feelings each morning for five minutes, um, and before I go to bed for five minutes. And that's sort of something really small, but it's helping me find my center.
1: I, said, um, I was a journaler um, for a long time,
3: and I just, um, I let, you know, the, the,
0: the stress, the overwhelmingness of getting my master's and now working on my doctoral program that I haven't done it. And I noticed that there's a difference on the mornings that I get up and I do meditate. Mm-hmm. Journal, you know, just to kind of be able to sit down quietly before anything else moves around me and just focus in on my visualization of my day what was yesterday like, the ills that I made, you know, man encountered yesterday, how can I make them better, or how they're not that important for what I'm trying to do, you know, just kind of, so I think you're right when you say it's different for every person, and you just kind of have to find that, whatever, whatever helps you stay grounded. and
3: mm-hmm. so.
1: Yeah. All right. So so these last kind of wrap-up questions, you can, you can take them however you want. If you want to answer them kind of based on education or just in life, that is fine. So um, what is the best advice you've ever been given, and who was that person that gave it to you?
2: So this is also one of those big, difficult questions, but I think the best advice that I've ever been given is extremely simple, and it was or is essentially do what ultimately makes you happy and feel fulfilled because people will always have something to say. (laughs) And the person who told me that always is my feisty mother. (laughs) I think it's such a good, um, I think it's just such good advice to have
1: as you move through the world. Mm -hmm. Just doing what makes you feel fulfilled. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. So, all right, what is one thing that you wish more parents knew about teaching? Oh, so
2: many things. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind uh, with regard to teaching is uh, the way that we've been doing things isn't necessarily the best way or most effective way Um, so please be open to change Um, if you have concerns you know let us know directly we're always here to help and be in partnership with you but most of the time we're just trying to do the best we can with what we have you know
1: right absolutely so kind of along that same vein though too um what what's the one piece of advice you'd give to a teacher who's struggling?
2: It's perfectly okay to be overwhelmed. It's okay to need help. Um, you are doing incredibly difficult, incredibly important work, and you deserve to
0: feel supported, so ask for help. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's
3: okay to be
1: overwhelmed.
0: I love it.
1: Yeah. But I, I, you know, and I think, you know, with that point, I, I wish we could add, you know, that little bit to it. But it's not okay to stay overwhelmed. Like, it's okay Absolutely. to be overwhelmed at moments, but you you shouldn't live in overwhelm.
2: And that's exactly why I think it's important to say, hey, admit when you're having a difficult time and ask for help. Right. No teacher should feel like they're alone right or that they don't have the support they need to conduct this incredibly important and difficult work that's mm-hmm. often thankless as we discussed right, right.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mhm all right so what is what's the best thing you've read or the best podcast or something of of that nature you've read listened to heard in the last year so
2: i and loving emergent strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it. Um, I don't want to get too much into it because I know that it's not going to do the book justice. Um, It describes itself as a radical self-help society help and um, and it's just full of really juicy, big ideas about how to transform ourselves and our movements for liberation. Mm-hmm. It's called Emergent. Emergent Strategy, and
3: it's written by a woman named Adrian Marie Brown.
1: Adrian Marie Brown. Got it. hmm Okay, so what what is your proudest accomplishment to date?
2: So this is a really hard one. Um, I will say that I just presented at my first national conference, and I just got another proposal accepted. And that is something that's really scary and new for me. But overall, I've really put myself out there, both professionally and personally, this last year um, in ways uh, that scared me. I got married. I moved to New York City. I started my own business. Um, and I, I feel really proud of myself for doing these things um, despite my anxiety and fear
1: of failure. Mm. So that's, I've just really been surprising myself lately. That's <laughs> so a, sometimes
2: I think it's important to slow down and, and give yourself a pat on the back.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I can speak for myself and, and I, and I don't, don't feel like I'm jumping the gun speaking for Will, but I I think we both suffer from that. We're so focused on what we've got going forward that we don't as often as we should kind of take a look at where we've been and appreciate the work that we've done and, and, and things like that. And I think teachers can fall into that trap too, but no, that's awesome that you've, I don't know how you balance so many things in one year. I just. I just did a move, and that was a lot to deal with.
2: Well, and I should note, I don't think I've mentioned. So I wasn't in the classroom this last year. Um, When I left Arkansas, I left the classroom because – I went from Arkansas to North Carolina to New York City in a year and had a destination wedding and planned that as well. Um, so I couldn't I couldn't be in the classroom. Um, and yeah, it was a year full of transitions. It was incredibly difficult, but I'm really excited about what's in store for the future. So
1: we'll absolutely, see. Absolutely. Um, so... Before we ask you the final question, people that want to connect with you, follow you, get in touch, uh, what's the best ways for them to do that? Yeah,
2: so I'm relatively active on Instagram, um, and my handle is at Razan, which ustadarazan is the Arabic word for teacher, if you didn't know. And that's O-U-S-T-A-D-A-R-A-Z-A-N, Razan. And I also have... Um, a website rosannaabdean.com I have a Twitter um, at Rosanna Dean, and I'm not particularly active on Twitter but I'm trying to change that just because I hear there's a lot of really good work going on there so those are the ways you can keep up with me if you feel so
1: inclined absolutely, absolutely. so before we ask you the final question we just want to again say thank you for you, t- for you taking some time um, to, to join us for a conversation and we've we've super enjoyed it and I know we say this a lot but you, you've you got an open invitation anytime there's anything you want to talk about all you got to do is just give us a call and, and we would be happy to continue this conversation with you thank
3: you so much for having me and thank you for
2: amplifying my voice I really appreciate
1: that Oh, you are welcome so uh, the final question before we get you out of here What do you want your lasting legacy to be?
2: So as cheesy as this might sound, um, the truth is that I think at the end of the day, I ultimately want to be a really good mother. Um, I, am not yet a mother. I don't have children. Um, But I'd love to someday bring children into the world who are joyful and kind and socially conscious and anti-racist and concerned with fairness and justice. Um, I think I want that to be my lasting legacy.
1: That's perfect. Again, thank you so much for taking some time to, to spend with us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation, and you both have given me a lot to think about.